0: Welcome to my podcast, Everyday Sublime. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here today. Okay, a little housekeeping before I begin today's conversation with Bernie Clark. First, I really want to thank those of you that wrote me personally in response to my tribute tribute episode to my late friend Michael Brooks. If you missed that episode, I'll include a link for it in the show notes, but I really want to thank each of you for your well wishes and kind thoughts. Michael's sudden and all too early death shook me deeply, and as tragic as it has been, it has also inspired me to channel his exuberance and passion for life even more into my own practice and teaching. This is sort of the mixed blessing of losing a dear one. So related to this inspiration, I also want to say a little bit about the podcast's creative direction going forward. As I've mentioned in some of the previous episodes, this podcast is undergoing a bit, or it's undergoing a slight overhaul, let's say. You may have guessed something was up with the change of art that you may have noticed on the podcast's cover. The new painting for this podcast is something that I commissioned from a friend of mine, Stephen Asma. Stephen Is a philosophy professor at Columbia College in Chicago, but also Steve is a killer blues guitarist as well as a prolific painter. His YouTube channel, Monsterology, explores the images or the imagery of monsters as they appear in different cultures throughout time and explores what those demons suggest about our own psychology while also talking about his own artistic process. It's really a fascinating channel. That's well worth checking out. Professor Steve is simply one of the smartest and most unassuming people I've ever had the pleasure of speaking to. And I'll be including a link for his channel in the show notes, so do check that out. That's Monsterology. Good stuff. Steve will also be on the podcast soon to discuss his painting for the podcast. Very self-referential of us, I know. But also we'll be having an in-depth Dharma discussion. Steve is very deeply practiced and uh, very versed in many forms of early Buddhism, um, and I've always gotten a lot out of talking to him. But back to the painting. When I commissioned this painting for the podcast, I was led with a desire for an image. I wanted him to come up with an image that contained, in essence, the entire spectrum of being. That is, an image that integrated the shadow elements of existence with the light elements of existence. So unifying the yin and yang of things. And I wanted that image to express the potential or the realization of unity. And I absolutely love the image that he came up with. The Russian doll motif of human experience, whereby we begin with animal instincts and conditioning, depicted by the lion. These gradually are tempered by greater and greater degrees of sentience, first evolving into the twitchy consciousness of a monkey, and ultimately blooming or blossoming into the serene, unified, and harmonized experience of a Buddha. This development is related to my own interest in exploring broader aspects of of the spiritual path. For a few years now, I've tried to focus on the podcast on topics related to yin yoga, Chinese medicine, and meditation. And, of course, these topics will still be addressed in various ways within the podcast's new scope, but I've also come to feel the need to explore themes outside this narrow or exclusive scope of practice focusing on yin yoga. Moving forward, I hope to host a wide variety of guests that help me explore the shadow of being and likely the unintegrated aspects of existence, as well as the light and love aspects of existence and ways to promote a perception of unification and harmonization between the two. And I very much look forward to exploring this development with you. Now, related to this development in the podcast, I'm also super excited to announce a parallel development in my own teaching. Beginning next week on September 14th, Terry and I will be launching our virtual Sangha. A Sangha is simply a community of practitioners united by a shared cultivation of the Dharma. Our virtual Sangha will be offering four weekly classes which include a dharma talk and meditation, yin yoga and qigong, just yin yoga, and yang yoga. The idea here is that by offering a program designed this way, we'll be able to help, we'll be able to develop spiritual themes and practices over an extended period of time. Commitment and consistency over time are the keys to any kind of transformational work. And we are super excited to establish this virtual Sangha as a way to support ongoing practice and development. And connected to this, I'm especially happy about our donation-based model of participation. You can tell there's a lot for me to be happy about here. But our donation-based model of participation is inspired by the cultivation of generosity we found in Buddhism, where teachings in Buddhism are freely offered often, and students support the teachings in whatever way they are able And we've tailored a donation-based model to make participation in our virtual Sangha available to anyone with Wi-Fi and a device to log in with. Terry and I will start teaching as part of our Sangha next week, and I'll hope you'll join us for the Dharma, Yin Yoga, Qigong, and Yang Yoga. And if you can't attend live for whatever reason, all our classes will be recorded and archived in our library. And this, is, this access to our library comes with any level of membership to our Sangha that you select. More information on all our offerings and the logistics of how it all works is available at joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha. That's joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha. S-A-N-G-A. And that link is conveniently placed in the show notes for you too. Okay, now I'd like once again to introduce Bernie Clark for today's conversation. As many of you know, Bernie is what I now refer to as the professor emeritus of yin yoga. His books, The Complete Guide to Yin Yoga, Your Body Your Yoga, Your Spine Your Yoga, these books are the definitive texts on practicing and teaching yin yoga and functional alignment. He's been on this podcast twice before, and he's now the first guest to make a third, but by no means final, appearance. If you haven't heard any of those previous talks, please check those out um, in the archives. There we cover everything from the teacher's mindset to hypermobility in yin yoga, thinking about osteoporosis in yin yoga, and many, many, many other essential yin topics. And recently, uh, Bernie has put together a wonderful document of concerns and misconceptions people have about yin yoga. I'll be leaving a link for that article on his site in the show notes, too. But let me say this. This article, what he's put together, this article is essential reading for anyone practicing or teaching yin yoga. Don't even think about teaching if you have not looked at this yet. Again, that link for the article will be in the show notes. Now today's conversation focuses on a tendency many people have, not just in yoga world, but it's a human tendency. It's a tendency that people have to fall into what we might call binary ways of thinking. And a binary or dualistic way of thinking tends to perceive things in terms of black and white distinctions, or right and wrong, or all or nothing type of thinking. So it's Never do this, always do that. That's the right way, that's the wrong way. This is up, that's down. This is the way it is, this is the way it is. This kind of binary thinking will show up in many misconceptions about yin yoga. And so we wanted to have a long form conversation about some of the ways binary thinking appears in yin yoga and we wanted to offer or model ways to move beyond this binary way of thinking. I have found this conversation to be one of the most enjoyable interviews yet And I hope it offers you helpful frames for how to better think about what we're all doing in yin yoga. Now, without further ado, I now once again bring you Bernie Clark.
1: Bernie Clark, welcome back to the podcast.
2: Thanks, Josh. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: It's great to see you again. You know, you just for the audience if they're just jumping in this is you are uh, in ways in many ways the the most um honored guest on the podcast this is your third appearance no other guest um is even coming close to those stats so uh, it's really great to have you back and um i was thinking that you know in the past we've talked about some of the books you've been writing your trilogy your body your yoga and um I, one of the things I wanted to ask you briefly at the front, up front was how's the, how's the pr- production of the, and, and writing of the second book going, or the third, sorry, the third book.
2: The third one. Yeah. Uh, it's coming along. Um, I delayed it a little bit because last year I came up with a second edition to the complete guide in yoga. And that took me about a year. So I'm about maybe halfway through the next one, which I'm right now, the working title is yoga for your upper body. I've covered the, the hips and the legs and the spine, so now it's the shoulders and the arms. And as part of that volume, we'll also look at asymmetry and proportions.
1: Right. So. And I,
2: you know, my,
1: my ancillary comment to that is simply, if people are anticipating that book, they better get busy digesting everything in the previous two books, because they're really, from my eyes, there's about a year of material there, at least a year to, for, for each book to be digested well. It's, it's it's quite quite dense and and, and incredible yeah. stuff. And um, you know, giving giving the scope of what you're putting together in terms of that trilogy, I, I want to honorarily bestow upon you the title of the the professor emeritus of Yin Yoga. <laughs> <laughs> you're really doing the, the, like fantastic work for all of us. And in trying to kind of think through and plan. Um, our conversation today. I know we we bounce some emails back and forth, trying to identify themes and topics that keep coming up again and again and again in both of our teachings. And mm-hmm. I think we settled on this theme of uh, we could call it binary, the binary mindset or binary thinking. Um, right. We're going to loosely call this podcast sort of beyond the binary. Um, and as a way to tee this topic up, you know, I the way I look at this is that. And this kind of echoes back or harks back to our conversation on mindset of a teacher. We had an episode about that. But an element of the mindset of the teacher is, uh, A, having sufficient knowledge to communicate the practice of yin yoga safely and effectively. But also, in order to do that, I think there's a kind of a a psychological frame that a teacher would be would be well off having—that's if, if not saying very well—but you know a, a, a mindset of how to think about the the injunctions of Yin Yoga, how to think about the science that surrounds and contextualizes what we're talking about Yin Yoga, um, in a way that ultimately doesn't tilt or, or, or slide into fundamental dogmatism on one end, and no. also kind of to each his own nihilism on the other end. Right. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And and I, so you know my my LLC is called Middle Way Wisdom. So we're we're I'm going to try to set this up so that we're we're really exploring what does it mean to hold the middle way um, as a teacher and using this this theme of binary thinking as a, as an exploration of that theme. Um, and I know you just set, uh, published a great newsletter about this, sort of sort of queuing up the, the this topic. Um, but do you want to offer kind of a working definition of Binary thinking and then and then we'll w- walk into how Binary thinking shows up in various aspects of yoga in general and yin yoga specifically And then sure. and then as I said to you in the email really model you can try both model how a teacher and or student might um, Engage with the concepts of the practice in a way that that, that avoids the extremes of either binary
2: yeah, I remember listening to Stephen Batchelor once give a talk. Stephen Batchelor is a, a friend of Sarah Powers, who everyone in yoga knows about Sarah, but they may not know her friend Stephen Batchelor. He was a, a monk with the Dalai Lama for about seven years, and he went to Korea and lived in a Zen monastery for seven years. And then he, he and one of the nuns kind of escaped and got married. They're living in the south of France. And he once said that dualism is very slippery, you try to come with a non-dual view of the world, but it's very attractive to slide back into a mind-body dualism. And right there, you've got the binary. There's mind and there's body. There's spirit and there's material world. There's prusha, there's prakriti. There's ha and there's ta. There's yin and there's yang. And so it seems like we can always divide the world into these two opposing parts, black and white. But the world isn't really like that. I mean, Stephen's whole reason of saying this was to warn people against sliding unconsciously into a dualistic mindset. And to me, that's also the challenge of science. is Science is always looking for the nuance. Yeah. Whatever you postulate has to be provable. Whereas philosophically, it's easy just to say, everything's black and white. Well, how do you test that? And once you start to test it, you'll start to realize, no, there's a whole bunch of grayscales in here. There's a, there's a whole spectrum of possibilities. And although at first glance it looks like that's definitely black and this is definitely white, you either agree with me or you don't, you're either for this or you're against this, you either support this person or you hate this person, you fall into these binary camps. And yet the reality is life isn't binary. There's always these grayscales. Yeah. Another way of saying it is I've often told students who come to my Yin Yoga teacher trainings that there is no one right way to teach Yin Yoga there's lots of ways to teach it but it doesn't mean there's no wrong ways to teach it there's lots of wrong ways to teach as well so it's not as you said anything goes right but it's not just one right way to go either
1: right it's i mean in, in a sense the practice is constrained in a certain sense like the, the, the good approaches to the practice are are bounded by bad approaches to the practice <laughs> <laughs> right right and that keeps you in the middle and it keeps you out of the camp of saying you can like because i do hear this somewhat frequently or more frequently than i care to hear you can in yin yoga you can do whatever you want in yin yoga there's no alignment and actually we may come back to that because yeah i may i may even uh charge you with with, with uh gently i say gently charge you with uh with uh proliferating that meme that you there, there is no alignment in yin yoga but um yeah, I mean, to Stephen Batchelor's point, and I should just for the for the listeners recognize that the name of this podcast, Everyday Sublime, was inspired by a chapter title in Stephen Batchelor's book, uh, After Buddhism. So he, he's he's definitely a thinker and a, a teacher that I'm I'm very interested in. Uh, but if we use the say the yin yang symbol, which is sort mm-hmm. of the, the 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 iconic symbol that we theoretically draw from when we talk about yin yoga. There's the the black squiggle and the white squiggle that are inextricably co-defining and bound to each other. And I think what you're getting at in, in, in terms of the, the mindset of a teacher is that people tend to think if you're doing, if you're in a camp where, or if you're in a practice where you're doing something that's yin, then Everything within that yin practice has to, in a way, line up in a clean column with things that are consensually agreed as yin traits. And if there's any yang in there, it's somehow a bastardization or a mutation or a, deg- a, a, a breakdown of the practice or a, a right. impurity, and, and vice versa. And I was wondering if you we could just talk about the image itself and how the grayscale isn't isn't rendered as gray in the in the. Uh, in the icon of tai, the Taiji symbol, but it's implied in the way of, in the relationship of dynamics between the colors, um, in terms of how they're transforming into each other and how one contains the other, et cetera.
2: Um, right. Yeah, there is, if you look at that circular symbol, first, there's the circle, the one, but inside you got the dark half, the yin part, and then you got the, the white part, the young part, but they have a, a sense of motion they're sometimes described as fish or paisley swirls. And the image doesn't really look static. It's like one is moving against the other. One helps to give contrast to the other. As some philosophers like Alan Watts says and Joseph Campbell, if everything was light, you'd be blinded. And we normally we think being blinded means there's no light at all, it's darkness. If everything was dark, you're blind, but everything is light is blind because you need contrast. You need some contrast in order to see things. And so the white becomes the dark. White moves into the dark, and the dark moves into the white. But even inside the swirls, there's a a white dot in the black swirl, and there's a black dot in the white swirl. So nothing is absolutely yin or absolutely yang. Sometimes when I start a yin course, I'll stand up in front of the class, I'm wearing a black shirt and white pants. And I'll say, my shirt, is it yin or yang? And a lot of people say "It's, it's, it's yin because it's black. I'll say right. In context of color, it's yin. It's black. But in context of location, it's higher. Therefore, it's yang. So is my shirt yin or yang? Well, it depends. What's the context? So nothing is absolutely yin. Nothing's absolutely yang. What do you mean by that? What what contrast are you going to put it in? Right. Um, Example: coffee is is a cup of coffee yin or yang? Well, in the context of temperature, it's very yang. But in context of color, it's very yin. So things aren't always just black and white, this way for always, and this way for always. It depends. It depends on so many things.
1: And in terms of uh, thinking about you know, the individual, individuals are a makeup of yin and yang qualities, and they mm-hmm. need to be. And the idea, of, at least in Chinese medicine, is that we harmonize the relationship between those qualities. Um, right. But I, as you mentioned, the example of coffee, I had a laugh because I remember Early on in my teaching and, and early on in my acupuncture practice, I had a a client who was sort of asking me questions during a session about some of my habits and when they learned that I drank a cup of coffee in the morning, they were almost offended <laughs> because it seemed so like so, so um, so inappropriate for someone that taught yin yoga. It's like, like I, I, like, like I have to always be just a yin blob in in every Mm -hmm. dimension or aspect of my life, which is kind of a misunderstanding. Um, but I do want to pick up on that theme of, um, you know, the transformation that you're talking about and the movement Mm -hmm. It's a description of movement and change and how change can be, developed in a way that is both balanced uh, balancing process or harmoni- a harmonized dynamic or it can be more of a pathological dysfunctional uh dynamic that, that contributes to ill health or, or problematic relationships in the world um and because there's uh, i used to have this view early on that the whole idea of looking at yin yang the whole idea of and analyzing things in yin yang was to promote a kind of 50 50 balance of them that if we could just get yin to be 50% and hold yang in check and if we can get yang to be the same 50% to hold yin in check then things would be healthy um but that's actually you know as i'm sure you can imagine that's that's quite it's, it's far too simplistic yeah but there's a there's a transformation and there's a you can have a harmonized aspect of the transformation where like in a certain phase where you think of yang coming into ascendancy the yang squiggle will be fuller and broader and and more dominant for a moment while Mm -hmm. the yin aspect of the squiggle is you know less dominant submissive uh uh just less pronounced and vice versa when the transformation goes the other way yang comes into ascendancy and and is dominant over yang for a period of time but it's a temporary phase of balance that's maintained or harmonization that's Mm -hmm. maintained and and i think that's a an aspect that it sometimes gets overlooked that you can have one being stronger than the other at a period of time but it's in a process of transformation that is overall the overall story of the change is one of harmony yeah
2: yeah imagine just the breath i mean nobody ever says jin is better than yang yang is better than yin but there's times when a yin is more appropriate than yang when we're breathing in you can say that's the yang breath we're inhaling It's active, the diaphragm is engaging to draw the breath in. But imagine that's all you ever did. You just inhaled forever. Well, you wouldn't last very long. You need, at some point, the yin urge to exhale is going to become very powerful. And now the yin will take over and you exhale. Now, if all you ever did was exhale, you wouldn't live either. At some point, the urge is going to come up to inhale. So yin yields to yang, yang yields to yin. One's not better, one's not right, but there's times where to build the balance, one becomes predominant or stronger. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's naturally better that you should always do yin, never do yang, or always do yang, never do yin.
1: You know, I'm hesitant to mention this because I, I don't want it to be heard the, the wrong way, <laughs> but since I've already met, <laughs> come out that far, with it not I have to go further. Um, you know, as you're, as you're saying that, I, the thought that just occurred to me is that this is why I don't say I'm a yinster. Right? <laughs> Because I don't, I'm not only yin. I don't only do yin yoga. Like I have all sorts of yang things. So I, to say I'm a yinster would be a partial description of my who I am.
2: And, um, and when I define yinster, I usually do it in a comical way. That you no, know, the the youngsters in life, the youngsters who get up at four in the morning, go do their two hours of Mysore practice, then go to work, and come home, run four or five miles, and they're in bed by midnight, but they're up again at four a.m. Now these okay. youngsters, they need more yin in their life. But there are the yinsters. These old yinsters get up at the crack of noon. <laughs> they start life, you know, with a scone or two, a couple, of, you know, a couple of warm milks. They have a nap at two o'clock. At four o'clock, they love a two-hour yin practice. Uh, by six o'clock, they're ready for bed. They need more yang in life. So I jokingly talk about these old yinsters, not saying that's the ideal way to be. I right. just contrast that you need both. You need the balance of yin and yang. It's time to be a yinster. There's times to be a yangster.
1: Right. And, and, you know, I know we both know that Um, I do think that message gets a little missed at times that people think, Mm -hmm. oh, if I'm, if I'm doing yin yoga, that's my, that's my practice. Or I'm doing yang yoga. That's my practice. It's really never, it's an either, not an either or proposition. Um, And I think that's, that's coming back Mm -hmm. to the binary, that that binary thinking essentially is it's either this or that, and it's not honoring the totality of a process that will involve and both aspects.
2: Yeah, The quality of the motion where one becomes the other, I think, is missing. Uh, There's a little pop quiz I often give. In July of 1969, Apollo 11 was heading towards the moon. And NASA had planned out on the computers the nominal orbit for the path that the Apollo 11 capsule will follow. And I asked students, guess how how much percent of the time was the spaceship actually on, on track, on orbit? The answer is.
1: Uh, well, actually, <laughs> I was going to guess 5%, five, five but what are you going to say?
2: It's 3%. 3% of the time, they're actually on orbit, heading towards the moon. 97% of the time, they're off track. But NASA kept monitoring. They kept checking. They paid attention. The intention was get to the moon. Then they paid attention. Notice, oh, we're slipping. We're heading towards Venus now. So that's correct. And now they overcorrected. Now I'm heading towards Mars. That's correct. And so there's this constant correction. And that's what balance is. When we're standing in the tree, the intention isn't to be stock still, perfectly still. The intention is to allow the sways. And someone who's not got good balance, they sway a lot. They're moving, lurching left and right. But somebody who's more balanced, they have little sways. But there's always a sway. You go to the left a bit. Maybe that's a little bit young. You notice, you pay attention, you counteract. Now you've over-counteracted, you go into the right. And then you're coming back. So you're gently just oscillating around the center. So the intention of centering practices is not to be in the center. Nobody can be in the center very long, maybe 3% of the time, but it's to notice when you're off center and you adjust. And that is Yin and Yang self-correcting each other. That's what we want. We don't absolutes. You don't always be leaning to the left, you'll fall over. But that doesn't mean leaning to the right is better because you'll fall over there too. Do you know the story about Ajahn Chah
1: in um, from Thailand last century where a student who had been studying with him for a while, confronted him and said, you know, sir, I noticed that you told these students to focus on the breath at their nostril. And you told these people to just listen to the uh, the sound of silence, for example. Um, mm-hmm. You seem to be saying contradictory things to to each of us. What gives? Mm-hmm. And he said, when a water buffalo go down, goes down the road, if it starts to veer to the right, I whack it on the right to come back, <laughs> tack towards the left a little bit, and vice versa. If going to the left, I'm going to fall into the ditch on the left. I whack it on the left to to get it to product to go to the right a little bit. Mm. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's vital to this. And now before we go into actual specifics around how this manifests in the yoga scene, or in particular the yin yoga scene, mm. um, I kind of, I, I mentioned this in the email to you, and I, I think it, it's helpful to put this on the table now as a, I don't know what to exactly call this, but maybe it's a psychological f- condition or a psychological experience that primes people to lean against or lean lean into the binary thinking or lean into more of a dogmatic stance and what i identify the way i'd articulate it is that when a teacher is in front of a room there is an implied position of authority that they occupy and in in a position of authority one of the things that we tend to associate with authority is having the answers to the questions. If a com- mm-hmm. question comes up to say, I'm not sure it could be this, it could be that to betray any kind of uncertainty is almost the equivalent of admitting to being, to, to being a fraud, <laughs> to be yeah. very blunt with it. And I think, I think that's, that lies. It's kind of like the P at, at the bottom of the mat under the mattresses. I think that's a P there that that really propels a lot of the toppling into binary thinking around dynamics. So as we go through these, um, you know, I kind of want to, I'm hoping we can, as I said, model how to confidently occupy that more uncertain position or an absolutely, a a, a position that's uncertain about the absolute um, position of things, if you will.
2: Yeah, that is a common fear, I think, for a lot of teachers. I was going to say for a lot of beginning teachers, but it can happen at any stage. You want to be the one that people can look up to and you want to be admired. You want to have all the answers. But the more you know, the less you know. This is the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? When you first get into something, you think, oh, this is pretty easy. But after a few years and it, you realize, well, there's a lot of complexity in here. I don't really know as much as I thought I knew. Yeah. The more you learn, you more realize the more I have to learn.
1: And, and just to echo on that for a second, you know, something I appreciated you said on the podcast before was that you felt that yin yoga was a really good place for beginners to start because it allowed them to learn their body at a pace that was slow enough they could feel and understand things. And I would even say, you know, the, the more experienced teacher in some ways has a more a difficult time shifting into a position out beyond the binary. Because right. they have a they have a lifetime or a, or a career of saying things in a certain way that just that becomes more or less um, automated in their mind it becomes yeah. sort of unconscious and they just say things and it it take, and I still I, I should say I I'm, in, I'm including myself in that because I still will hear catch myself saying things I'm like wait a minute that's a little bit too
2: that's a little too much the way I put that right one of the things I, I enjoy about writing books technical books is I will start to write some paragraph, I'm in a flow, I don't wanna stop, I'm just putting words down and suddenly I make a statement and I stop and think, wait a sec, how do I know that's true? Where did I get that from? And then I might have to spend two or three hours researching that one statement so I could put a footnote, mostly to myself. So if I ever go back and say, that's why I know that. But sometimes I'll do the research and I'll find out "Mm, that's not true. One of my cherished sayings I have to throw away because I don't know where I got it from, I thought it was true, but when I actually look at it, in black and white—is that true? You know, it, sometimes it stops me short. So uh, I'm glad you're
1: mentioning that, and we—I do want to get into some of the themes that you may and my may have updated over the years in terms of how we think and phrase mm-hmm. certain principles of the practice. And I think um, I think that's important for folks to hear. But before we get to that, and before we get into specific examples, uh, since you mentioned it, can you talk like, subjectively on, on your end, what is it like for you when you realize you've been saying something or that you've, you've, you've believed or uh, identified a certain principle as more or less being axiomatically true, and then you find evidence that contradicts it and actually starts to refute it? Or, mm-hmm. or challenge it to the point that you have to, you you can't continue on saying the same thing anymore the way you were. Can you just describe what is that like for you? Because again, this is part of the modeling. Because again, you're mm-hmm. Professor Emeritus here. For others to hear that 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 you actually do this yourself is going to help others come to it themselves too, I think.
2: There's an old saying in science that uh, paradigms shift one funeral at a time. <laughs> that was a
1: Thomas Kuhn, was it?
2: Yeah, Thomas Kuhn wrote the book on the structure of scientific revolution. I don't think he actually said that. I think it was another scientist. I don't know if it was... Uh, so if it
1: was a quantum physicist, I think.
2: Um, it might have been Wolfgang Pauli or, yeah, or one of those guys. But uh, that's the case. When you're just learning about things, you're open to all sorts of ideas. You're in what's called the divergent uh, phase of learning, where you can take in all sorts of things. But after a while, you get kind of overwhelmed. and Now you don't want to hear another piece of information. You want to digest everything you've got. Now you're in the kind of convergent uh, phase where you're dealing with all the stuff you've got, and then you come up with your map or your paradigm, and that's going to last you the rest of your career, unless you switch to another field, in which case you might have to look at some new paradigms. And I went through that as a yoga teacher. I had some, I had a degree in science, and I've had a wealth of experience in the business world and management and so forth. And the first few years of teaching yoga, I was still open to all these sorts of ideas and then I kind of had enough and now I was coalescing around, this is the way to teach it. And I would get into this Dr. Yogi thing where I knew a little bit about biology and anatomy and people would come and say, well, I've got osteoporosis. Oh, well, then you should never do this. You should do that. And then I had to kind of stop myself when I had a new paradigm put in front of me from Paul Grilly and human variation, skeletal variation, That kind of blew everything out of the water and I had to stop and think, well, (laughs) am I really sure anymore? And so it says, don't know mind, this beginner's mind, if you want to quote Suzuki, D.T. Suzuki, a a Japanese Zen master of the last century. If you can keep coming back to the beginner's mind and realize it's okay to say, I don't know. You may have heard this. um,
1: And actually, let me just jump in there real quick. Don't know mind is not the same as know nothing. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean there's, you still have knowledge about basic things and functional relation of knowledge that gets you able to work through the day. It's not that you say you don't know nothing. it's just that you're you're when you as you, with the dunning- Kruger thing, the more you look into anything, the more you realize that we are uncertain about the origin of any of it toward the ultimate meaning of any of it in a certain sense
2: yeah if you look at the example of standing on the shoulders of giants when Einstein, came up with his theory of general relativity, which redid our understanding of gravity. He was working on Newton's. Now Newton's theory works 99% of the time. For everything that we see in daily life, Newton's map is perfectly good, but it didn't explain everything. It didn't explain, for instance, the way Mercury orbits the sun and how its, its orbit precesses. For that, Einstein created a new theory to help answer 1% of the data that Newton couldn't handle. So it didn't mean Newton was wrong suddenly. It just meant new, no map is perfect. No philosophy answers all questions. It's actually been mathematically proven that you can't mathematically prove everything. It's called incompleteness theory. And you have Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. So we have we know that you can never know the whole universe. You can never work it out completely. So we're always refining, which doesn't mean that everything else is suddenly bad. We're always working on that next level of refinement. So the same thing is, as long as you don't know everything, you know you don't know everything, you're open to these refinements. And that's the exciting part about science. How can I explain this one piece of data that doesn't fit the map? How do I change the map?
1: And actually, that ties back into something I've received, I think, or picked up from Stephen Batchelor, which is his, I think the way he articulates, or at least at one point he articulated his notion of agnosticism. That agnosticism is a position of I don't know if there's a divine or a creator being or a a, a, a transcendental God or whatever it is. Don't know, but it's not because I haven't looked or because I'm not interested. It's because the ultimate, um, the case can't in a sense be explored by the limitations of the human perceptual system. Like there's there's fundamental questions that, that just cannot be cracked with the, the 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 biological hardware that we have
2: Well, we have this thing that's drilled into us from a young age in school that every question has an answer You know, what's what's the hypotenuse of a triangle? Oh, well, Johnny, he puts his hand up Johnny must know the answer but my first end teacher presented us with a bit of a conundrum once uh, we used to i used to go there three times a week and after the zazen sitting there'd be tea time and we'd just have some jasmine tea and we'll sit there for about 5 or 10 minutes and then we'd go our separate ways but there was um, one fellow who was coming for a second time and this was all by Dana, by donation and this guy robert at the end, during the tea ceremony the teacher asked robert in front of everybody else robert i noticed when you left the uh, meditation last week, you took $20 from the donation box. Robert, why did you take the $20? And the rest of us are kind of shrunting down in our zaffoies thinking, why is she making this public? You know, this is kind of embarrassing. tension in the air. And Robert said, I didn't take $20. And the teacher said, Robert, I'm not asking if you took it. I saw you took it. I'm asking, why did you take it? And Robert said again, I didn't take it. She says, Robert, you're not listening to me. Why did you take the $20? Then Robert just... Shut up for a few minutes. And the rest of us, again, were just cringing. And finally, the teacher looked at all of us and said, by the way, just so you don't get the wrong idea, Robert never took the $20. But I asked him the question. And we have this thing that every question must have an answer. And so if we don't have an answer, we'll make one up. Not every question has an answer. I mean, think of the koans in Zen tradition. Uh, Can God make a mountain so big that God can't move it? How many angels can dance in the head of a pin? these questions don't have answers. The koans are meant to stop the logical thinking processes so you're just in pure experience.
1: Another way of say that, just it's not contradicting what you just said, but the koan is, is, is an, I think Ken Wilber said it like this, that the koan yeah. is designed to, to, to exhaust the strategies of rationality and right. sort of just, just exhaust the ability of dualistic thinking to make sense of the question. So, so it, 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 in the exhaustion of rationality, the mind kind of breaks open to a perception of unity, but, but to, the, to, to the wholeness of the dynamic or to the, the yin yang symbol again, if you will. I realize I got off track though. So, you, re- you recently re- released a second edition of Complete Guide to Yin Yoga. And I'm wondering if I drill in, I'm wondering if there's, and I haven't had a chance to comb through the second edition yet, I apologize. But are there were there things that you updated that kind of that you weren't satisfied with the way you said it in the first edition, and then and then what was the because I mean, short of rewriting the book, what was that experience like, or can you give me the example and and, and kind of the, what went on for you in that?
2: Yeah, some of the motivations were the book was about five or six years old already, well, maybe more than that. It came out in twenty twelve. So yeah, I was about six or seven years old. And like with any work, there's always criticisms and critiques that I can make of it saying, I wish I'd done more here, wish I'd done more there. Uh, The original advice I got was make it short, 275 pages maximum, which made me trim out a lot of things. The second time, I wanted to put in things like props. There was nothing about props in the first book. And yet props are an important part of yin yoga. You don't have to use props. But props can make the practice more accessible for some people and juicier for other people. There was also, uh, when I created that first book, the the co-publisher of it lived in Ashland, Oregon, and he had some pictures of a, a yogini who ran a yoga studio there. So there was only one body type, and I wanted to show more of a wide range of body types. So I wanted to show a pregnant person, and I wanted to show male, uh, different ages, and so we did that in the second one as well. And to show variations of the poses for these different body types. There was also a posture in there that I thought was very onion-like, and that was the camel. So I decided to take that out. And there was another posture that I've really used a lot in my yin practice, which is the supported bridge, the pontoon bridge, or whatever you want to call it. So I swapped those around. I did talk to Paul Grilly to make sure he was okay with me turfing camel. Because it was a very yong yin pose.
1: You know, i <laughs> just laughing as you said, because, you know, in my trainings, I use your book as one of the core texts, and, you know, inevitably the hand goes up. How come you haven't taught us camel? <laughs> and I, my only answer is, I have no idea why camel's in this book. It, there's nothing yin about it in my, yeah. as far as I can tell, and I, I never came to you about that, but uh, I'm glad to see that on, on that. I put it in
2: because it was in Paul's book.
1: <laughs> well, and, that, and, and well, that's actually an interesting dynamic to mention. Because that's the other part of uh, the dogmatism that can creep into a a yoga tradition or a yoga Mm -hmm. style is that there is essentially a game of telephone. And in in the yoga world, you're really only claim to author uh, to validation or credential is to name who you study with and to name who you, which teacher you study with and who their teacher was. And And it goes on and on. And, 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 um, that itself becomes well. Somebody said, Paul said, Sarah mm-hmm. said, Josh, Bernie said. You know, and and that's pernicious. Yes. You know, there's a value in being associated or having a, a encountered and, and, a, and imbibed of a teacher's uh, knowledge, but it can get dangerously too strong or too much if it if it if it's never questioned or really if the thinking around it is never explored. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, when you first start something, you have to listen to your teachers, your professors, or whatever. But the analogy I use, what you got from Bruce Lipton, is you're flying the plane. You're on the plane, and you got this beautiful group of ground control down there. And they're giving you certain advice, and they've got a lot more knowledge about flying a plane, but you're the one holding on to the stick. You have to take responsibility for landing that plane safely because they're not on the plane with you. They don't have the same vested interest you do. So take the device. That's great. Some people do know a lot more than you, but you have to ultimately make the decision. You're in charge of your plane. So yeah. it's great to hear these things and these lineages. But I mean, who would follow Jacques Crochet's 1500s map of Montreal to drive through the streets of Montreal today? We have better maps today. We have yeah. Google Maps. Right. And we have a map in yoga by some guy named Patanjali that's 1700 years old. And we honor that as if In the last 1,700 years, we've learned nothing. This is the absolute truth. Well, (laughs) a lot of people have adapted and added to the map. So it's great to know this. It has a lot of historical interest, and some parts of it may speak to you. But you have to take control of your life, and which maps are you going to use, and can you stand on the shoulders of giants and figure out how is this going to apply in my life? Yeah. So don't ignore that wisdom, but you can't give up your authority or your responsibility to these people because they're not on the plane with you.
1: Yeah, beautifully set. Great analogy. I'll, I'll I'll be stealing that one. Um, so as we go into now, say maybe some specifics around the, the way binary thinking crops up in yoga and, and, and then yin yoga specifically, um, I thought it might be good. And I know we've talked about this before, but it might be good just to walk through the issue of functional alignment and, 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 and look at binary thinking through the prism of functional alignment, because, uh, I think people will get that. And then having a reference point for something they, they more or less already understand, they'll start to see how it can show up in, say, when we talk about what tissue is yin yoga working on and, you know, right. and, and all that kind of thing. So um, you know, I'll just say, and maybe this is similar to your experience, but when I started yoga in general, I was, um, I was a, in the family of Iyengar yoga. And uh, and I have there's many things I respect and love about Iyengar Yoga. I'd say it's still my Yang Yoga of practice if I'm going to do Yang mm-hmm. Yoga, and I, I I find it very beneficial. But the the thing that about that model that I th- it has may as it may have updated in the system since I was there too. So I don't want to like charge a current dynamic of Iyengar Yoga by the standard. But when I learned it, there was more or less. The correct way to do the pose the teacher was walking around you know or from from opposite sides of the room analyzing your pose by based on how it looked and more or less saying you need to conform to be like this be like x Mm -hmm. and and when i started teaching that was a i mean it was a very easy in a certain sense easy model to replicate because Mm -hmm. there was a clear idea of what was supposed to happen And you just had you just have the have the have the idea of what it's supposed to look like, and then you just bark at people until they move more or less in that position.
2: It Um, is easier to mass produce aesthetic alignment teachers. Because it's just a checklist. Just make sure everyone looks like this. Tick, 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 tick.
1: Right. And so and then, you know, like you, I encountered Paul Greeley and, and and kind of woke up to the truth and then implications of skeletal variation or as you say, skeletal variation, which I like, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, then for a while I, you know, Paul hadn't really fully fleshed out his, his articulation of functional alignment. Then you weren't really even on the scene then. And when I was teaching, um, I didn't know what to say anymore right <laughs> So I and I kind of fell into the opposite camp of saying you can do whatever you want; uh, it doesn't really matter. Like, and then that you know, then I could hear the parodying back from my students that say, "In Yin Yoga, alignment doesn't matter." Right. Um, and and then I I realized, no, no, that it, like there is an intention. Just like your your Apollo spacecraft trying to get to the moon, there is an intention of something you're trying to achieve. Yes. You have to identify that, and then you know, as we've talked about with functional alignment, you 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 try out certain actions to see which of those actions bring you closer to the intended experience. Right. And, and that's something that the student has to evaluate on their own. Like I just got, a, I got an email from Europe the other day, someone saying if you, like they were saying, I, I want to do your live training because I want to learn how to do assists <laughs> and I said, well, I don't do assists, really. I, I, that's the last thing I would do in a yin class or even a regular yoga class. She's like, well, how do you correct somebody? <laughs> I said, Well, that's a much larger t- conversation. That's why we have the training. But, you know, I, I spelled it out. But that view is, is it gets back to the mindset of the teacher, that the mindset of the teacher is somehow this authority that is, that the teacher is able to diagnose and rectify any problem a student based by looking. All right.
2: Yeah, as if they had x-ray vision, that right. they knew exactly what was going on inside the student and knew what the student's experience was. And this this is not true.
1: Well, it's not true. And so the middle way, just to just to really bang this out clearly, the middle way is between the extreme of dogmatism that says this is the only way to do it and everybody should do it like this, and then the other extreme... I'm referring to more of a nihilistic camp of like anything goes, nothing matters, you can do whatever the hell you want and it's all good. That's not true either. There is a middle way where every student has to take like onboard the basic principles of the practice and work with them and and, in a trial and error manner, figure out which version of a pose is going to optimally facilitate the kind of experience they're looking for. Right.
2: So this is why I say beware the binary. If you think there's only two states that the world can be in, Either alignment is a thing, or anything goes. That makes it binary, but you're missing the nuance. The nuance are the little circles inside the fish in the Taiji symbol. So a lot of people do say that that I'm anti-alignment. I'm not anti-alignment, I'm anti-universal alignment. There is no one alignment that works for everybody. But that does not mean that alignment isn't important. The challenge is to find out what your alignment is and if you got a class of 20 or 30 students that now becomes a much bigger challenge for the teacher because to make everyone look the same in warrior 2 or down dog that's that's kind of trivial all you have to do is have a mental template of what people look like move all their hands here and their feet here but to try to do what what is the individual alignment for each of the 30 people that's much more challenging it's certainly doable and there's lots of techniques which I'm sure you share and I share in my courses as well as to how you can do that and not you know, spend a whole hour just on one pose, right? But it is scary and somewhat frustrating for teachers to have to realize that oh my god, everything that I just learned, I paid three thousand dollars in my two hundred hour teacher training to learn these alignment cues, I have to now throw out.
1: Yeah, I, and, I, and I know in the email, it's not going to say the those alignment cues. So this is <laughs> this comes up in my trains. I'm sure you hear it all the time. It's like, it's you said it in the email to me. It's someone takes your training and then they say, I don't know what to say in my next class. And you had something like, well, you say, you know, if you're going to do standing forward fold, take your feet what, hip distance apart, fold I mean, forward. I, what
2: I always say, Yeah. but I'm just not dogmatically insisting on it. And I'll add at the end an option to try different variations. So I'll say, come up to the front of your mat, feet together. Um, but if that doesn't feel right, try the feet apart. Or right. point I don't really care. People right. know and, how to say. And so that's why I,
1: I just want to ref- reframe that around uh, the two hundred hour, three thousand dollar training someone took. It's not that they have to like defenestrate or throw out all of the cues they learned. Like that's that becomes working functional vocabulary that they then now build upon and refine mm-hmm. as they onboard the implications of functional alignment so it's it's not that you can't, like everything you said was wrong, it just was only partially true some of the time, not you specifically, but the student like the teacher like the, the, those those functional those aesthetic alignment cues you can start with them perhaps as one option of, of a few, but from there you would then open up to the complex nuance of the individual, which they would have to figure out.
2: yeah, you got to say something. you can't just come to the front of the mat, look at the twenty students and go you got to say something just don't be dogmatic about what you're saying and don't insist on it right paul really warns that when a teacher who's been trained in the aesthetic style comes to the functional style they usually go through the five stages of grieving the first stage will be denial that's not what i was trained you have to have the knee pointing over the second toe not the third toe second toe The second stage The lateral
1: aspect of the second toe,
2: by the way. (laughs) Right. So first there's denial. And then there's anger. Well, I just spent $3,000 learning that the knee has to go over the lateral aspect of the second toe. And then there's uh, bargaining. Yeah, but what about for most people that should be this way? And then there's depression. Well, now I don't know what to say. I'm going to quit and join a convent. And then hopefully the fifth stage of grieving is integration and acceptance. Now, people don't go through these all linearly. Sometimes they go back and forth a few times. But at the end of all that, once you can integrate a functional approach to teaching, you realize you can still say what you've always said, but you don't go around correcting people, as you told your uh, person from Europe. Instead, you'd ask, what is your experience? We have an intention for each pose. That's the primary uh, theory of functional approach to yoga. There's a function, there's an intention of this pose. And you pay attention. Are you hitting the targeted area? And if you aren't, then modify the alignment, modify the position. So it's not that anything goes because then you may not get the intended uh, targeted area being hit here.
1: Or you may be causing um, deleterious, inappropriate stress somewhere else while you're targeting the intended area. So Uh, that's part of the nuance too. Um, Do you want to name any of the common binary uh, type views you see in yin yoga specifically?
2: Oh, there's so many. And uh, I wrote a, a little booklet, which I sent you a copy of a little while ago called the uh, responding to the concerns of yin yoga. Things like hypermobile people should never do yin yoga. Well, that's black and white. Uh, you should never do hot yoga, hot yin yoga because hot is yang. You know, that makes it very black and white. Uh, pregnant women shouldn't do yin yoga. You shouldn't do yin yoga if you've got uh Danlos disease or if if you've got cancer, if you've got osteoporosis, you got all these statements that you should never do if. And that just automatically makes it black and white. Another one that comes up with the functional approach to yoga is people who hyperextend, say to hyperextend the elbow. Of course, in the aesthetic world, you always want every joint to be nice and even, 180 degrees. Well, with my left arm, I can go to 180 degrees, no problem. That's my limit. And that is functionally the limit because that's where the little part at the end of the ulna called the electronon, fits into a little socket in the humerus called the electron fossa. When those two bones hit, that's as far as you can open the arm. But with my right arm, I can only get to 170. I cannot straighten my right arm. Not because I don't want to, not because I'm not listening to teachers, or my mula bandha is just not strong enough, or I don't know ujjayi breathing, I just cannot physically make the bones go there. Now there's other students who go past 180 degrees, and they hyperextend. So maybe somebody goes to 190, I go to 170. Well, each case, we're all going to where the bones allow us to go. But the girl who goes to 190 degrees, and she's usually women, not always, she'll get corrected. She'll say, give us a little micro bend there. And when you ask the teacher, why did you micro bend her? She may say a number of different answers. One is, well, she's putting her elbow at risk. Now, that's a speculation. She just created what we can call a nocebo. We can talk about nocebos later if you like.
1: No, no, yeah. Well, if you're going to use that word, just spell that out briefly. We'll, we'll take a we'll open that up because that's a really important topic too. Just open
2: that up for a brief for a moment if well, you don't mind. Most most listeners have heard of placebos, which is from the Latin to I please. Nocebo is the opposite. Nocebo, and this means I harm. And so this person is put in this uh, woman's mind that if she hyperextends her elbow, she's going to hurt her elbow. And we'll come back to why that's a nocebo.
1: So, so, uh, yeah. And so the opposite would be, if you do that, it's going to be good for your elbow. So it's, it's right. like the, the person's primed with the belief that this is going to be, lead to positive outcomes if they do it. And that, that itself, that belief that it is going to be good could be enough to actually bring about the goodness independent of any physical sort of mechanism right.
2: that it can be found, right? Right. But we have this black or white binary view that hyperextension is bad. And again, whenever you get this absolute, you have that should trigger something inside you. Whenever you hear a should, or never, or always, something should go off in the back of your mind. You should start to look for the nuance, the little white circle and the black dot. You know, Is that always true? Yeah, for some people, that's true. If they have a, an injury to their elbow, that could be a problem. Or if they do have Marfan syndrome or Ehlers-Danlos, it may be a problem. But if they just are normal, in terms of that's just the shape of the bones and they feel no pain while they're in the pose, when they come out of the pose on the next day, then it's perfectly okay from the hyperextend. So, uh, so the other is I just want to strengthen the elbow. So I'm going to bend it a bit. Well, that's a good intention, but why pick on that one girl? Why not have the whole class micro bend?
1: So, so as I'm listening to you, I'm trying to imagine, um, you know, what might be going on in a, in a teacher listening to that and, and one of the things I imagine is that when you start to open up to the inherent complexity and potential and, and the potential within that complexity that something might go bad. Right. <laughs> I think this is, we're drilling into like one of the, the kind of the, the cognitive psycho like the emotional issues in this dynamic that makes it very difficult to occupy and stay within the middle space. Because the complexity of of outcomes and, and within those outcomes, the potential for a negative outcome to be on the horizon scares a teacher from well, I think scares the teacher into a conservative position.
2: Exactly. Because you could do too much, don't do anything. Either of those extremes are bad. If you never stress a joint, it will atrophy. If you overstress the joint, it will degenerate. But somewhere between these two extremes, there's gray. I like to call it the Goldilocks position. Mm-hmm. Don't be where it's too much. But don't be aware it's too little either. Well, the Goldilocks zone is a bit of an N-shaped curve, and along the bottom of the curve is stress. Along the horizontal, sort of vertical axis, is health. So the more you stress tissues, they become healthy and healthier to a point. And then if you continue to stress them, they become less healthy. So too much stress is bad, leads to degeneration. But no stress is also bad, leads to atrophy. So you have to find out where that middle zone is. And in terms of a joint, if you never allow a student to stress their joint, it's going to atrophy. It's going to become weaker and weaker. Yes, you could overdo it. But just because you could overdo something doesn't mean you should never do it. And as you mentioned, Josh, a lot of teachers, out of a fear of doing too much and harming the students, they go to the other extreme. They make it binary, which is why I say, beware the binary. And they do nothing. Say, never hyperextend your elbow, never hyperextend your knee. And that's out of fear. It's not out of any tests or scientific reasoning, it's just oh that looks bad. If I did that I would break my arm, because I can't do that. Therefore you shouldn't do it either. Yeah. And so we see these binary things cropping up all the time. <laughs>
1: now, this is probably off topic, but I, I wonder if like if if the, the more polysyllabic words get thrown around, if that increases binary thinking. <laughs> I know like when I hear the word hyperextension, it just feels in like inherently bad and evil and and to be avoided um now that's probably being due to my conditioning but
2: um it's a nocebo type word but if you go to other modalities like weightlifting, they don't call it that they call it lock and load right so if you got someone doing a jerk which is or a snatch taking a 200 pound barbell from the floor and throwing it up overhead and pulling it with straight arms the ones who hyperextend the elbows they'll hyperextend it and they'll hold 200 pounds over their head with hyperextended elbows. But they don't call it hyperextension, they call it locking the elbows. Yeah. Now they've trained to do that. Through years, maybe even decades, they've calloused the bones. They develop very thick joints in there through repetitive stress, and they can take that. For someone who's never done that before, I would suggest you wouldn't want to do that. And you'll be told because they'll be hurt. There's pain there. If there's pain, you need to back off. Because there's no pain, while you're in the pose the next day, or coming out of the pose, then it's probably okay. And these theories that you'll get from teachers saying, well, if you keep doing it, you can hurt yourself. That's pure speculation. They don't know that. There's no studies about that.
1: Right. It I, I, but, it's, but it is, it is um, I mean, I've been in these situations, not recently, but I used to, you know, before, I, I, I should say this, before I became confident in reasoning this way Mm -hmm. before and and I and I really I put this I attribute this to you I mean you you've spent uh, many years in in writing articles talking about kind of the how to think logically through propositions in yoga Mm -hmm. um and before I had that whenever I was confronted by a statement like the fear of God hand like you just described like if you continue to do this you will
2: it,
1: it was it was a visceral feeling of terror in my gut that i would recoil from like i said okay then i then i have to shrink back from this statement
2: Right.
1: so it really this is this is like super important that um i i want people to hear this that uh it's it's not easy to shift into this this kind of a mindset it's going to and that's why i was trying to ask you about your book and your writing process if if you've confronted the difficulties and the pain of having to give up a cherished tenet that is mm-hmm. no longer uh, supported by what your new knowledge is showing you. And, and, and uh, psychologists get into this idea of loss aversion, right. that, that when we lose something we've identified with, we experience that loss emotionally twice as much as we would the comparable game of something similar. So, but yeah. real simply, if you found $20 on the floor, this is back to your 20, back to your, your, your Zen student who stole the $20, <laughs> you know, they experience that $20 as a comparable gain. But if they if they lose twenty dollars, they experience it emotionally as losing forty dollars,
2: right.
1: and that kind of gets can get people kind of stuck to particular positions or situations that have long uh, outgrown their use utility, um, and, and and prevents them from actually letting something go to incorporate and inv- and integrate something new.
2: I did go through a bit of that in the book. Not uh, you mentioned this. In my first edition of the book, I had a whole bunch of benefits from all the poses. And most of them I got from Mr. Yangar. I mean, his history and light on yoga and other books, it said this would be good for arthritis, this would be good for uh, menstruation problems, this would be good for heaviness in the testicles. Butterfly is good for heaviness in Let the me
1: testicles. just Let me throw mine on. I, when I was in college, I had an inguinal hernia. And I found light on yoga, and I started standing in my head thinking the inguinal hernia, because it was written in the, in the appendix under, the, under yes. the remedial sequences. I'll do the sequence there, and my inguinal
2: hernia is going to go away. Well, I still had to go see the surgeon. <laughs> yes. Well, when I redid the book, I, since you know, 2011, when I wrote the first draft, I realized that all these claims that Yanger had were not scientific claims. They were just uh, either speculation on his part or anecdotes. Now, there is a value in anecdote, but it is the weakest form of scientific evidence. The value of an anecdote is, if it's true, then it should direct future research. But it's not proof in and of itself. So I had to weaken a lot of those claims. And at the same time, I went more to a functional approach where I emphasized more the targeted areas of the poses rather than the the benefits that Mr. Younger said. And, you know, where that shows
1: up in yin yoga land... I think, is when we get into the, ch- the traditional Chinese medical application. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's, there can be very easily a, a dogmatic view that this pose stimulates this channel and therefore is going to confer all sorts of energetic physiological benefits for that organ system. I'll be, uh, as an acupuncturist, I'll be very direct here and say that is purely speculative. Right. And And in some ways, what I've been saying in my recent trainings is that that potential the speculative benefit of that is actually just mobilizing the placebo. Right. Which <laughs> it is great. Which is great. It's, and, and I think it has functional truth value in that. and, yeah. and It's a functional truth. But it's not necessarily, uh, pr- we haven't proven it but by a long shot.
2: Yeah. In the energy lines in the second edition, I had to change to may stimulate these meridian lines. Thank you. Yeah. That's good. No, but that's. about um, Will stimulate. It,
1: right. I don't know if they will. Yeah. When um, we were still trying to figure out what what these channels are, anyway, it's not. Right. I don't think that's even um, locked and, and sealed. Um, you mentioned somewhere that back. You were you listed some of the many kind of binary topics in Yin Yoga. it's hypermobility, certain illnesses, osteoporosis, cancer, et cetera. We've talked about some of those on previous episodes, so I will just try to re- refer uh, anyone listening to those particular shorter episodes. But you did pick up on, you mentioned hot yoga, hot yin. right? And this is one where, you know, I'll share, you, share with you and the audience what I learned it to be first, the theoretical mm-hmm. rationale for the relationship between yin and yang yoga or hot yoga and yin yoga. And then I would like you, if you might, to bring in the 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 nuance now into the conversation right. so when i learned it it was the idea was basically and this is kind of binary too that yin yoga is the yoga that stresses the dense connective tissue primarily at the joint sites so your ligaments and your joint capsule tissue that's the tissue that's getting stressed in yin yang yoga stresses the muscle and its fascia more so mm-hmm. there's that kind of binary and I, I don't subscribe to that anymore we can look at that in a second but the idea around integrating yin yoga with yang yoga or where you sequence the two, the idea was simply that when you move your muscles with rhythm and repetition, they warm up, they become more filled with fluid, they become more pliable. And when you go into a range of motion or a pose, when the muscles are warmed up, the muscle tissue and its fascia tends to be the layer that absorbs the range of motion more and less emphasis is placed at the joint tissue. So therefore, the idea is that if you're going to do them two together you do yin first because with the muscles relatively cool the stresses will soak into the joint tissue to a greater degree and mm-hmm. then um, when you do your yang yoga after your your engagement with the muscles and moving of them will emphasize the muscle and it's fashion more and the idea is that if you went into a hot yoga context if you went to say a heated room uh, upwards of maybe what is it for you 35 38 degrees mm-hmm. centigrade nine in, in the 90s for me um, That with the heat, that would decrease the viscosity in the fascia and um, increase the pliancy of the muscles. So therefore, the the joint tissue would not be receiving the intended yin stress. And doing yin yoga in a hot room would be counterproductive, if not potentially injurious due to situations of potential overstretching. There's the fear of God. (laughs) So that was kind of that was the way I thought about it for a while. And I have to say, I haven't fully Upgraded my thinking on this. So this is where I'm, you know, the, the good professor here will hopefully uh, Upgrade my thinking and those of the others in the audience
2: Well, let's start with basic principles. What's your intention in doing your yoga? The intention isn't always physical It can be people can come to you Yoga because they want to increase range of motion and that's that's a great reason but sometimes people come because they're stressed out psychologically. They're under a lot of stress. They want to chill, they want to relax, or they just want to, you know, just some downtime. They don't have to think, they can just be with other people. Sometimes it's energetic. You know, I want to work my kidney marines. Sometimes it's meditation. You know, I don't really do well just sitting for 45 minutes on a Zafu, but Yin I find I've got a whole bunch of five-minute meditations. So there's lots of reasons that can bring people to the mat. And what you describe, the physiological aspect, there's only one reason. And let's put that aside. You can still do yin yoga and get all these other benefits, whether it's hot or cold, because those benefits are still there in the practice. So there's lots of reasons to do yin yoga. It's not all about the connective tissue.
1: Yeah. And, and, yeah. You know, and, that, and, that's, and that is something, a message that I give to people who claim, more, the more hypermobile folks that say, I don't feel anything in the yin poses. Is it worth my time doing this? My answer is it depends, but then I do tick off those other potential benefits or areas of benefit that they might be experiencing from just occupying the poses and being in the practice with a kind of a mindful mindset.
2: Yeah, the real question is, do you feel better at the end of your practice than you did before the practice? You won't know microscopically what's going on with your fascia, but you should know, "Ah, I'm glad I did that, or geez, I wish I hadn't done that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Kind of figure that out. So just because it's a hot room doesn't mean that people won't get benefits from the practice. Now, you're right that if the tissues are warmed up, the more young tissues, the the muscles, will take up more of that stress than the the denser tissues closer to the joint. For most people, but not for everybody. There are some people who are just naturally so stiff, they can't even get past halfway. Think of a caterpillar or Paschimottanasana. And you see a lot of beginners, they can't get to vertical. They can't do a 90-degree flexion with the hips. Their knees have to be bent and so gravity isn't working for them. They're using their core muscles to stay up there. Put them in a hot room, all that gets stretched out a bit, now they can go past halfway, now they can actually relax into the pose. So for some people, you need to be warmed up in order to get to a position in the pose where you can actually stay. So for these people, hot yin is perfect for them. And the question of degree, yes, it is true that when you're warmed up, more stress will be taken by the muscles. But that doesn't mean all the stress has been taken by the muscles because the muscles are in series with the tendons and ligaments, So they will also get some, not the maximum, but do you need maximum? As long as you're getting some benefits, who cares? So it's always a question of degree and intention. True.
1: And, and the question that I hear choruses of students asking is, oh, how do you know whether someone should do yin yoga in a hot context yeah. or not? Like, right. In other words, how does the teacher look at a student, and uh, you're suited for that, for, to those conditions, and you're suited to do it in, a, in an air-conditioned room at 72 degrees. Like How, how does the teacher parse that? And, and my answer is the teacher doesn't, but I, wanna, I would like yes. to hear what you say.
2: No, exactly the same. Uh, I tried hot environments, and they don't work for me. Either I'm a bit too pitta or too Canadian, don't do well in hot environments. So the few times I've tried uh, hot yoga rooms, I threw up and got out. So hot yin is not a thing for me. But that doesn't mean it's not okay for other people. Now, I don't like hot tubs, but I'm not saying nobody should go in a hot tub. It doesn't work for me, but I'm different than anybody else. So everybody's different. You may have to try it a little bit.
1: Yeah. And I think you even said, and I've actually been doing this more myself. I mean, the the other kind of binary was that you do yin yoga before any act you you, if you want to get the the benefit for the yin tissue you do it before um the active exercise Mm -hmm. um and and then there's some studies that say oh no you shouldn't be doing if you're doing dynamic exercise you shouldn't be doing passive static stretching beforehand that's been associated with sort of increased risk of injury perhaps um and then i think you've 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 refined how you think about that injunction too right yeah, that's also in this document,
2: I said addressing concerns about yin yoga. Uh, athletes shouldn't do yin yoga. Well, the most recent studies, and there's a woman in Norway, I think it is, Maria Mottebak, who did a whole thesis on this, and she's got a lot of information on it. Athletes at the highest level, like a Usain Bolt or you know, a, a know wrong, from, the, from the Boston Bruins, they may lose about three to four percent off their peak performance if they do a lot of stretching before they go into the sports. But for a weekend warrior, that three or four percent is negligible. They're really not going to notice it. Three percent on a 100 meter dash, that's going to be the difference between winning gold and not making any on the podium. but just going out there playing around the hoops with your friends, you're not going to notice that. It also depends on the position. A goalie, they need to do these splits. And so for them, stretching before they go on the ice is probably going to help them. Even though they won't have quite as quick reflexes because they kind of stretched out their springs a bit, now they can reach further. So if somebody's on a, on a rock climber, they're probably going to want that extra half an inch of stretch so they can get the hand over there to the foot up on that ledge. Even though they might not have the same uh, strength, they may lose four percent in strength, but they've got a little bit extra range of motion. So again, it depends. Yes, it is true that if you stretch before your athletic endeavor, you will loosen up the springs a little bit, but it's almost trivial, and it only really comes into effect in these elite
1: sports. So on that theme, though, how would you put someone of these around whatever research it was that was suggesting that these people do passive stretching before the, the dynamic exercise are putting themselves more at risk of injury?
2: Well, there's no definitive studies that agree with that. Okay.
1: So I guess that I'm not even sure where I see I've seen this floating around there. Yes, it's come it, across is me out,
2: it is up there in the wind, if you will, that if you stretch up beforehand, you overstretch. But for every study that shows up, there's another study that doesn't show it. And these studies are only like 10 people. And they're talking about stretching for 10, 15 minutes. So it's not a huge, and it's not like they did a retrospective study or a study of 10,000 people and found that all these people who stretched beforehand, you know, they're doing the ER work. So, but
1: but that okay. So now I'm, I'm as we're talking, more and more of these like peas under the mattress start. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean revealing themselves, which is that, and I'm guilty of this too. That you know a yoga teacher will see a study, one study,
2: right.
1: and that becomes the thing that they organize their entire worldview around. Yes, yeah. yeah. Like one study, and that's it.
2: Yeah, science really isn't based on unreplicated small study. It has to be proven over and over again. Um, but you know, here's the thing: the real important question is, what's it like for you to warm up before your sports? Right. Because even with these studies, you now say they had ten people, six of them may have found it actually decreased their performance, but for three of them, it increased their performance. And so the study's going to conclude, on average, this harms your performance. And everyone's going to think, well, then I shouldn't do it but maybe you're one of the three that actually got benefits from it. And one of the things I put in the second edition of the book is the whole idea of poses. It's two philosophies in yin yoga. After you do a pose, you should just go into the rebound, just come into a little shavasana for a minute and enjoy that energetic quality, which is great, and that's lovely. But for some people, they have stretched themselves up so much, they need to pull themselves back together again. They need to do a counterpose. And in Yin, you might spend the first 20 minutes doing flexions, in the spine, you know, like caterpillar, butterfly, half butterfly, straddle, and then you might spend another 20 minutes doing extensions. Well, at the end of that 20 minutes, you've probably gotten rid of all the stretch from the forward folds, and then you might end with twists and just them. So at the end of your practice, you probably let all these tissues regather back together again.
1: Right. So, the, I mean, the, the sequence itself is a built-in counterpose okay. mechanism.
2: And if I do a two-hour yin class, I'll usually end with about five minutes of yang counterposes to pull the areas that we've just worked out. Like if I did a whole spine uh, stretching sequence, I may finish with I call the McGill Big Three, uh, three little exercises that keep the spine neutral but just tighten them back up again. But well, that's a long yin practice, two hours. If I'm just doing an hour yin practice, I'll just let the shavasana be the counterpose. So
1: um, I think... There's, there's, To my mind, there's two other things I want to make sure we get into. One is this the the binary of what yin yoga does and doesn't do and what yang yoga does and doesn't do. And then it's kind of a subset of that conversation. I think we'll be looking at the connective tissue in terms of the, the yin and yang relationship of plasticity and elasticity. And, you, and sure. it sounds like you have some new thoughts on that. I've been thinking about this for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's maybe start with the first one, which is a bit easier, which is this broad binary that i know i learned it i don't know when and i'm not blaming paul greeley but it was sort of a simple heuristic or a simple rule of thumb that yang yoga with its movement and, and rhythm and repetition is going to be more beneficial on the muscles and their fascia than say um a static passive hold to, oh. and then the static passive hold is be better for those denser plastic tissues at the joints um, i would say the first bit of uh, scientific discomfort i felt with this model or that particular binary model was when i started ca- encountering the research of, and probably yourself too the, the research of robert Schleip, right. he was starting to look at um in, and was showing that the the dense connective tissues uh, at our joints have a the collagen in those tissues has a, has a crimp-like wave-like formation that imbues those tissues with a young spring-like quality and, and showing that in, in bouncing movements, that yang, uh, the quality of the coil was getting both cultivated and, and maintained. And it made me think, the discomfort I felt was, hang on, this is yang activity and it's stressing the joint. Right. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'll let you take it from there. But that's, that was the beginning of like the, the crumbling of, of how I used to teach. Um, when I when I first encountered that.
2: Yeah, I think to put some of the earlier things that Paul said in context, he started teaching his yin yoga in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, and he knew it was beneficial. That was his experience. That was data. And he tried to come up with a map to explain the data. At that time, we didn't know as much about fascia as we did today. Today, Paul would have a different sort of explanation of these things. So we, we learned more. Again, you wouldn't drive through the streets of Montreal, the Jacques Carchet's old map from the 1500s. We have better maps today, and the same with Paul. So we know today, fascia is like a three-dimensional body stocking, stocking that invests and envelops all other tissues. It invests, it's in the muscles. So when, when you, you say stock- invest,
1: that's a word I know. I know what it means, but I think it's a it's a, a verb that um, may bring a little confusion up for a listener. When you say invest, what do you
2: mean by that? It goes into and through the tissues. It surrounds the tissues like... a uh, like a plastic bag, think of a, a pack of eight hot dog wieners yeah. or tofu wieners if you're a vegan, that plastic wrapper is fascia. But imagine now that fascia was inside the hot dogs, it invests. So actually inside every muscle cell there's fascia and around the muscle cell there's fascia, and around the group of muscle cells there's fascia. And the same with the organs, the same with the bones, the same with the, the ligaments, everything else. Everything's invested and surrounded by this fascia. So you cannot not affect the fascia. Whether it's a yang pose or a yin pose, there is a load of stress being put on the fascia in different locations. It's a question of degree and intention. <clears throat> Robert Sleip has discovered that if you do plyometrics, which is these bouncy type movements, you increase the springiness of the fascia. Now, was not talking about the credit card effect, which is what Paul was warning us against. If you move a credit card back and forth over and over again, that's not a springy type thing. That's eventually just going to wear away the credit card, no break. If you move your wrist up and down, up and down, over and over again, that can have the credit card effect on the retinaculum or the fascia around the, there. So in Paul's cases, that's a, not a good way to stress these tissues.
1: This one comes up, and I've never quite understood it, but the credit card fear mm-hmm. is that if you if you aggressively, dynamically stress the joint tissue, that it will somehow become weakened and and overstretched.
2: Over Yeah, you could do that if you don't allow a proper rest period to it. Right. Because, again, the theory of the exercise is you must rest, so you must stress or load the tissues, then you must rest the tissues. But if you're, say, you're a massage therapist and you're constantly working with your hands, moving back and forth, and you never really let them rest, you can, through time, wear them up. But if you do that for a bit and then you let them rest, they'll adapt. Tissues adapt to load. There's a little acronym, SAID specific adaptation to impose demand. But you have to have enough refractory period. You have to have enough rest for that to happen. So yeah, there's nuance within all of these. You can do too much yin, you can do too much yang. And pyrometrics is somewhere in between. Is it yin or yang? It depends. <laughs> Compared to some things, it's more yin-like. Compared to other things, it's more yang-like.
1: Well, why have you here? The, the way I've tried to voice that is that whatever you do with your body, you're going to, you know, to borrow the Tom, Tom Myers, Tom Myers phrases, you're always training your fascia. So if you're doing yin yoga, you're training your fascia within, with yin stimulations. And there'll be specific kind of benefit on all of the fascia from that specific type of stress. And then when you're doing yang exercise or yang yoga, you're training all of your fascia, building in yang qualities or or yang benefits to to those tissues. Um, It's not That's how I've tried to to, uh, move into a position beyond the binary of one only affecting the the other.
2: Yeah, come back to Slife's work in the plyometrics, these bouncy-type things, increase the springiness of the tissue. That will actually probably shorten the tissues as well because you think a tight spring is a little bit shorter than a very loose spring. Mm -hmm. So if our intention is we want to make the, the tendons, the ligaments, the joint capsules thicker and longer, you wouldn't use plyometrics for that. You'd use a long-held traction, which is what yin yoga does. So in my view, yin yoga makes tissues thicker, stronger, and over time, longer. So we can actually increase range of motion. Plyometrics makes them bouncier, which athletes really need, need that. Y- yang yoga works the muscles, making them stronger. But yang yoga can also increase the resistance of the tendons because they're in, in, in series with as well. So yin yoga does affect yin yoga. i oh, sorry, yin tissues. Yin yoga does affect yin tissues. It's just a question of degree and intention. So and, yin, and, and it's not always one or
1: the other. A question of degree and intention and benefit conferred. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, like, you know, uh, very. and this may be my own still <laughs> harboring some binary views, but it seems to me like uh, in terms of hydration, decrease of inflammation, the, um, the the sort of the strengthening of the joint tissue, it seems like Yin yoga is a bit more suited for those kinds of benefits, and Yang yoga with its um, en- en- engagement of the muscles is going to you know, stimulate the fascia in different directions. Like there's, there's going to be transverse stresses as well as longitudinal stresses. Okay. Um, and, in it, and there are certain yang movements that will bring in that kind of, I think, that elements of that, that, that spring-like qualities to some of the tissues. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's definitely, it's not either or. So right. in, as I think you just said it, yin yoga will emphasize the fascia and yang yoga will em- emphasize the fascia.
2: They, they all affect the fascia, right. but in Yin, we're kind of targeting the fascia closer to the joint more. And in Yang Yoga, we're targeting the muscles more. But you can't isolate; you can target tissues, but you can never isolate to that tissue.
1: But even tar- even even that, and and I, and I know I'm I'm probably being pedantic here, or you know, uh, too 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 detailed focus. But say say targeting the tissue, Yin Yoga targets the tissue tissue of the joint. Well, if you're doing the plyometric, the tissue at the joint is getting targeted.
2: Right. Well, we're not targeting it. We're affecting it. We're not isolating to the joint. So the target is the okay, actual the, the, the fascia within the muscle and the tendons. Those are the ones we want to increase the springs. So you're not really targeting the joint, but the joint will definitely be affected. What was the it's, word again you use It's, it's, it's not it's targeting. targeting
1: it's, isolating. it's isolating, right?
2: Yeah. yeah. I, you can't isolate. No exercise, no yoga you can isolate, say, your biceps. Mm-hmm. Or isolate the hip socket. You can affect these areas, but you're affecting a whole bunch of areas too. So I can definitely target the biceps. I can do curls. Yeah. While well, I'm doing that, I'm, I'm affecting the triceps too. I'm affecting the elbow joint and the shoulders and the back. So even though my intention is to make my biceps bigger, it's never isolated to that.
1: Yeah. No, I think that distinction is important, and I, I, I need to spend more time articulating that myself. The difference between targeting and affecting something. Yeah. Um,
2: and just as an aside, uh, the work of Antonio Stecco, another. Rockstar in fashion research. He showed that at about 40 degrees centigrade, which is what's at uh, 90 plus, four, yeah, 100, yeah. yeah. 104 Fahrenheit. Hyaluronic acid deaggregates. Now, some hy- people, hy- hyaluronic acid? Hyaluronic acid is a lubricating molecule, and it's a Goldilocks molecule. If you have too little, it's not good. If you have too much, it's not good. If you have too much, it kind of comes up and ooze up the things, and now you can't slide. But if you get up to about 39 to 40 degrees, in a hot yin or a hot yoga room, that actually kind of liquefies and deaggregates the hyaluronic acid. So there's another benefit for hot yin, is actually it can deaggregate when you have too much hyaluronic acid in the location.
1: Interesting. I mean <laughs> how would we want to even know if they have too much hyaluronic acid aggregated in their system?
2: Well, it's another cause of maybe scar tissue or stuckness or some things like there's many reasons why we can't. Reach our edge in a pose, and oppose, or we can't go past the edge. Uh, it could be short-tight muscles. It could be neurological. It could be fascia. It could be scar tissue. It could be immune system, and so on.
1: The only so I'm, I'm I'm being aware of our time, and I feel like we've covered a lot of what I wanted to get get spoken to here. Um, you know, the the, th- the thought one of the thoughts, maybe the concluding thoughts I had that I mentioned or made note of in my notebook was coming back to the mindset of science itself that, that scientific understanding today will not be the consensual scientific understanding 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Like, so just in terms of anatomy, you know, I forget which book it was in, but someone said the anatomy teacher says, you know, 50% or (laughs) what I'm teaching you now may not be true five years from now. And the only problem is I don't know which 50% that is. It may be only 5%. I don't know what the percentage was, but the idea is that some amount of what we know now will be um, upgraded and, 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 and even outdated five or 10 years down the road. And that, if you know that that's the way it is, right, this is the way that scientific progress develops, Yeah. It does beg, or I think mandate even, a kind of intellectual humility around any kind of pronouncement that has any kind of scientific sound to it.
2: Again, we have to be aware of, like we said with yin yoga, it's not a case that anything goes. We're not being dogmatic that this is the right way to do it. Again, there's many right ways to do yin yoga. But there's many wrong ways to do it too, so I'm not saying anything goes. The same in science. Just because we're always refining the model, that's the whole point of science, is to make it better, to keep asking for explaining these things and finding out more. This is why it's the exact opposite of religion. Religion, you have a revealed truth that's dogmatically assumed to be true and don't question. In science, everything's up to question. If you get one fact that doesn't fit the model, well, the model's wrong. I think it was um, Richard Feynman who said there's nothing sadder than a beautiful theory undone by one inconvenient fact. Inconvenient so, sorry.
1: I want to answer it. Um, the, where, I just lost my thought.
2: Um, I just wanted to finish this thought, uh, yeah. Josh, that a lot of people think because science is always changing, we don't have to believe anything it says. That's it. That, that's not the point to take here. We're refining the models. Remember Newton's map of gravity was accurate 99% of the time, but not 100%. And then Einstein came later on a bit more to it. So we're always finding more and more, we're fleshing out. Some maps are very complete. There's still a few mysteries out there. Some maps are very new and we're still adding to it. The whole question I ask myself in any sort of scientific thing is, who is credible? Who can I listen to? Like I'm not an expert saying, well, we're in the middle of a pandemic. So who do you listen to? Well, I'm not gonna to listen to people I see on Facebook. I give them a credibility index of one. I'm not gonna to listen to somebody who's actually studied this a lot and did you know, months of research. I give them a credibility index of two. I might listen to a doctor, but who's not an immunologist. He's just a well-trained person in the medical field. I give him a, a credibility index rating of three. But a doctor who is an immun- immunologist and spent 20 years in this field, I give them a four. But then there's a a group of a thousand doctors in this field, Uh, maybe the American Association for the Advancement of Science. They've got 100,000 members, and they will have their consensus. That's to me like credibility five. And then there's the ultimate peer-reviewed journals who have done the experiments and attested this and had it peer-reviewed. These people like New England Medical Journal and Cell and uh, JAMA Lancet JAMA. These people, I give the level of six, they know far more than I'll ever know, even more than my doctor will know. So I have to think about, well, who are the experts in this field and who, what's the consensus at? Even though that consensus may change, it's not going to change so much that suddenly we're going to say everything Newton figured out was wrong. No, it's just we're going to add stuff to it. And so I will default to their knowledge. But again, I'm still flying plane. I have to make the decision on what to do you know, with the plane. but I'm going to try to base it on the most credible information I can get. Mm-hmm. It's not a question because science is always changing. I don't have to believe anything.
1: Right. And so that, because that, that I mean, that shows up get in the political landscape. If a politician comes to a new realization, a new way of seeing things and they change their mind, they're suddenly a flip-flopper and they get, they get. They get dismissed because of the, a changing position. I think that that, that energy shows up, and in, in, as you just articulated with science, because change, science is changing and upgrading, it means we don't have to believe any of it. it we discount right. discounted all, and the basic binary.
2: Is, what's that? That made it binary because they change the mind. I shouldn't believe anything. Right. Whenever you see these two black and white things, you have to look for the nuance. And I would,
1: even, I would flip it and say, if someone's willing to change their mind, that's the type of personality that's, more, yeah. <laughs> that's a bit more beneficial personality to listen to. And, and, and someone I know you, we both like is Sam Harris. Um, I mm-hmm. can just hear Sam saying, the answer to bad science is not no science. Right. It's, better, it's better science.
2: Yeah. Scientists are humans too. They're going to have all the human problems. Science may not be a very good way of uncovering the reality of the world, but it's better than all the other ways. It's kind of paraphrasing uh, Winston Churchill, who once said democracy is a terrible way to run a government, but it's better than all the other ways.
1: Right. It's, I, I was listening to a conversation with Stephen Pinker recently, and he was talking about the primacy of reason, saying it's the best thing we've got. And if anyone argues that there's something better than reason, they're using reason to prove it. Right. <laughs> so in a way, I mean, and I don't mean just reductionistic, materialistic science. I think there's, we can open up the the lens or the, the model of what uh, a valid epistemology of science is on different levels of experience and different levels of, of existence even. Um, but I think that's a really good point you made.
2: I think Um, we, um, we we, we didn't get a chance to talk about nocebos, but there is an article I've written on nocebos for yoga teachers. So maybe you can put a link to that in your notes. Well, I don't, if
1: you, if you have, if you have the gas in the tank, I would love to have you talk about that. Do you have, yeah Yeah, five minutes or five ten minutes um so yeah let's 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 dial back to that come back to that there's and, and this was really kind of i remember i think this article appeared in yoga international and um you know i had never even i had seen the word in the literature but every time i saw nocebo my mind kind of glazed over i had a sense of what placebo was but this article was quite interesting um so basically why don't you talk about what a placebo is and what a nocebo is and then what I loved in the article is how you, you, you uh, described how that might show up in a, an average yoga class.
2: Right. Yeah. So let's give a couple of examples of what nocebo can do. Uh, one example was in in England. There was a worker at a construction site, and he stepped on a, a nail, and the nail went right through his foot and was sticking out the top of his boot. And the worker looked down and saw that. And he was in intense agony. He was you know, just on the, on the ground, writhing in pain. The paramedics got to him, and before they even cut his boot away to take the nail out, they had to give him morphine and everything. And they finally got the boot cut off, and they found the nail actually didn't go through his foot. It went between two toes. But the man saw this, and his mind said, that's got to hurt. And he was in this huge agony. Well, that was the nocebo. He thought he was injured, so he felt the injury. So the uh, belief
1: of injury brought about all of the physiological sensations and emotional pain and anxiety and terror of an actual injury
2: right so just seeing that he thought he was injured and he experienced the injury
1: do you know the um sorry i'm not gonna distract detract you too much but there's a hilarious thing i maybe can link to it on youtube where there's a setup where someone's sitting at a table and one of their hands is kind of is, is is out of their field of vision by a a dividing wall. And then they they see that the, that hand is being, um, I think stroked with a feather and they can feel it. They can feel that. But then there's a prosthetic hand sitting where their normal hand would have been. Right. I'm not saying it quite right, but the point is they take out a hammer and go to hit the prosthetic and the person recoils thinking their real hand is going to be hit. Even though their eyes can see it's just a prosthetic.
2: Yeah, so the mind's belief in these things is very powerful, whether it's belief in good or bad. And there's a tragic case of a a man named Sam Long back in the 80s. Sorry, the 70s. Sam was retired, and uh, he noticed he had trouble swallowing. So he went to the doctor, and the doctor discovered that he had metastatic esophageal cancer. Now, at the time, that was a death sentence. They had no way of treating it. And so the doctor told him, put his affairs in order. But then Sam suddenly kind of went into remission. And the doctor thought, well, this is great, but you know, if it comes back, that's it, the game's up. So a little while later, they found there was a little bit of cancer gone to his, his uh, liver and he, his throat was starting to act up again. So the doctor said, well, put your affairs in order. Well, Sam had just married a woman who lived in Nashville, Tennessee. So he didn't want to make it such a big burden for her to look after him. They moved back to Nashville and it was over the Christmas holidays. He got a new doctor, a doctor named uh, Clint Medor. Clint Medor was the doctor. And the doctor said, well, you know, Sam, this, this is bad. You've maybe got a few weeks. And Sam just said, just get me through to New Year's so I won't be a burden on the family. So a few days after New Year's, Sam passed away. Now, that's a tragic story. But interestingly, when they did the autopsy, they found that the cancer diagnosis was a false negative or false positive rather. Yeah. He had a little bit of cancer in the liver, none in the throat. Sam died with cancer, but not of cancer. Never since, Clint Meador kept wondering, did I kill Sam because I told him he had a month to live? That's the power of a nocebo. When you tell somebody that something is going to be bad, often it can be bad, just the same way the placebo makes it good. And right. we see this in the yoga room, if you see someone hyperextending their elbow, and you say, don't do that. And they say, why? It's because you're going to hurt your elbow. You've just implanted nocebo there. You have no proof that it's going to be damaging to their elbow. You didn't ask them, does it hurt? Does it hurt while you're in the pose when you come out the next day? You just told them this is going to hurt. And if they ignore you, you're going to say, well, over time, you're going to destroy your elbow. Now, the next time somebody extends her elbow like that, she might feel a little twinge. Now her mind's already got this nocebo in effect. Uh-oh, I'm starting to destroy my elbow. So now she never straightens her arm which means the tissues there never get stressed. There's never a load there, which means atrophy, which means it's more dangerous for her to straighten her or to go past 980 degrees. And we do this all the time. If you have somebody who's fixated on the aesthetic approach, said so you must do this. And with questions, they'll say, well, if you don't, you risk injury to your knee or to your hip. Well, you just created a an nocebo. And now these people are gonna be hypervigilant and any little tweak there will start to feed into the nocebo and they'll stop doing what the body naturally should do. So we have to be careful of using any negative terms or imagery when we're teaching. Even though it's with our best intention, we don't want the student to hurt themselves. And if I did that, I would destroy my joint. So I'm gonna say, don't do that because you're gonna hurt yourself. Well, you don't know. That's just pure speculation. They'll know, you should ask them, what are you feeling? And based on that, you give them some instruction, but don't assume they're gonna hurt themselves and just give them a C-pull.
1: Yeah, no, I think that last bit you just said is an important one to amplify a little bit more because, you know, as you gave the example of the doctor in, in Nashville, I can imagine all sorts of litigious issues around giving false hope, not giving a clear sense of um, prognosis, et cetera. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, it, you know, he's, he's basically, that, that doctor sounds like he's just covering his tracks a little bit and making sure he's not open up to opening himself to, uh, kind of malpractice claim in a way. And mm-hmm. I think, and I think, and I think that energy trickles down into the mindset of a teacher who would be saying, don't, don't do that. If you, if you, uh, or you will injure yourself because I mean, again, they mean, well, right. there, there, there's this fear if they do something and I don't warn them about it, then they, then they injure it. Then that responsibility is on the teacher.
2: Right.
1: So, I mean, so can you remind, re- review, what was the final phrase you came to? It's like, you know, it's something you don't say, don't do it. How would, you, how would you voice it differently?
2: Well, I would, first of all, ask, what are you feeling? I would seek their experience of it. I mean, I can put myself in the doctor's position. A patient comes and says, well, tell me, doc, how long have I got? Mm-hmm. I can understand why the, the patient would want that. But for the doctor to answer that, it creates the placebo. Because whatever date he gives him, six months, one month, six weeks, he doesn't know. It depends. So you see somebody doing something, hyperextending the elbow, saying vashistasana. I would go up and say, what are you feeling? Now, they probably won't know. They'll look up and say, fine. (laughs) I'm glad you're feeling fine. Your elbow, what do you feel there? And they may look off in the distance. Maybe they never paid attention before. Now they have to tune in. Uh, It's fine. If they say it's fine, I'll ask. Is it, is it okay when you come out of the pause? Yeah. Uh, will it be okay tomorrow? Yeah. Then I leave them alone. I walk away.
1: Well, of, course, uh, you know, of course, that's a, you know, will it be okay tomorrow? Uh, I don't know. You know they're not going to know well, that. You're, done you're, done telling them, you're telling them to pay attention over time.
2: Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. yeah. they this before. Did it ever hurt? If it doesn't hurt now, it doesn't hurt later, then why am I trying to correct them? They don't have a problem. But if they say it does hurt, they'll say, okay, well, maybe there's a bit too much stress there. Why don't we back off? Have your hips on the ground when you do this, or maybe micro bend the elbow. Let's start with a little bit of load. So I do want them to go through the full range of motion. I want them to callus the bones there. I want them to make those bones thicker and stronger. So that doesn't mean never do it, but we'll do it in graduation. You know, A little bit of stress, a little bit more load, a little bit more load. And over time, maybe they can do Vashisthasana. If you look in lighting yoga, Mr. Yengar, he hyperextends like crazy in his elbows. So would you go up and tell Mr. Yanger, hey sunshine? Give us a little micro bend.
1: <laughs> Did you just call Mr. Anger sunshine? <laughs> I hope he's rolling in his grave. Um, so you know, one way to summarize that, and this is I think the way I've tried to approach it, and I think it's 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 patterning in with your recommendation, which is that the mindset of the teacher, the, the cues you give in the unique instance are really coming out of the student's experience. Right. It's like you're not going in with a, a, a preconceived idea about what's right or wrong. You're going in with, a, a, again, you're armed with your intention. You know what you're trying to achieve, support what, what you're trying to facilitate. And then you have to actually talk or listen to what the students, talk to the student or listen to what they're saying to help them determine whether they're, ex, you know, in, in, this, in the right zone of, the, of that intended experience.
2: Right, analogy I often use is, imagine you've got a migraine headache and you go to the doctor's office and there's 19 other patients waiting for the doctor. She's running late today. She finally comes in and says, okay, today we're all doing aspirin. Aspirin, 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 aspirin. And you're thinking, okay, I got a migraine, that's really gonna help me. But beside you is a woman who's six months pregnant. And she's a little concerned saying, aspirin, is that gonna be okay for my baby? Beside her is someone with asthma. And they're saying, aspirin is gonna do nothing for me. Beside him is a guy with an ulcer. Wait a minute, aspirin's going to kill my stomach. But the doctor just waits and says, aspirin, aspirin, aspirin. Now, you wouldn't go back to that doctor. You want the doctor to figure out what works for you and see you one-on-one. Yeah. But now you come to a yoga studio. And up at the front <coughs> is the yoga teacher and says, today we're all doing sun salutations. Maybe you just a one-week yin yoga teacher training, and you are think, great, I need to move. That's going to be good for me. But besides, you's a six-month pregnant woman wondering, is that dog going to be good for my baby? Beside her is someone with carpal tunnel syndrome on the wrist. And she's thinking, sun salutations, that's going to kill my wrist. And the teacher says, we're all doing sun salutations. Now, you wouldn't go to that doctor, but you go to that teacher. So the challenge we have is with the teacher is, how do you figure out your class so that you can work individually with each student? If you're just trained in aesthetics, it's easy. Just make everyone look the same. But if you're taking a functional approach, that's much more challenging because you have to figure out, I have an intention for this pose. Is that student getting it? And you have to go up and check, or teach them how to check. Yeah, that's much harder,
1: right? And that's and you know, really inspired by both you and Paul. That's that's sort of been the the core thread of how what I try to now weave myself through not just the physical practice, but the energetic and the meditative practice too. Mm-hmm. The, the same approach can can. can can, can be distributed through all those different layers. You know, it's like, what is your intention? And then you ha- the student has to figure out, okay, when I do this, when I do X, how does that make me feel? Right. And so, cause everyone wants to know how many times I should do yin yoga a week. How many should I do yin yoga in the evening? Should I do it in the morning? Da, da, da. And I, I have no yes, idea. Yes. <laughs> yes. Or I don't know. Right. It's, it's, it's like do it and see.
2: Yeah. And see. So you're flying the plane. You have to go with works. Mm-hmm. We're all ground control. We can give you advice, but it's your plane. You got to figure out. You know, there's a difference between a seven hundred and forty-seven and an assessment one hundred and fifty. Which one's going to work for you?
1: Ah, well, look, I, I, I think we have uh, gone through this this topic in 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 pretty comprehensive depth, and I want to just extend my gratitude to you for your time and, and willingness to engage with this
2: conversation. Oh Josh. gosh, yeah. always fun.
0: Hey, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bernie. Please do check out the show notes for links related to topics that were covered in our conversation. Now in the next episode, I'll be releasing a Dharma talk based on this conversation with Bernie. And this relates to the Sangha again. Within the online virtual Sangha, I'll be giving a weekly Dharma talk on the spiritual theme for that week. These talks will be roughly 30 minutes in length and will be distributed on the podcast if you aren't able to attend the live talk in meditation. The upcoming talk is called The Art of Spirituality. And here, with this talk, I'll be trying to set the tone and show how the principles of functional alignment, that is, the principles of how we think about aligning our body in ways that uh, align with our unique skeletal structure, roughly speaking, I'll be taking the principles of functional alignment and considering how they can apply to literally every stage of the spiritual path, opening up a creative and unique expression of the Dharma in your own practice and path. So check out the information on this talk and how our virtual Sangha works at www.joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha. That's www.joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha. Terry and I are also teaching our yin yoga teacher training modules all online now and my site has all the information about those too. So whether you wish to train to teach yin yoga or you wish to simply deepen your personal exploration of yin yoga, traditional Chinese medicine, meditation and yang yoga, our modules are accessible to students at all levels of development and experience. And lastly, if you're looking for a spiritual tribe that puts yin and yang yoga, traditional Chinese medicine and meditation, at the heart of the spiritual path, we look forward to welcoming you on our shared journey. Thanks so much for listening today, and I'll look forward to seeing you in the next episode.